If you, were, if you opened up your Bibles there with us to Philippians for the prayer time, just turn back a, a few pages to Ephesians chapter 6. It's on page 1039 if you have one of our Bibles, um, which if you have one of our Bibles, we, we want that to become your Bible if you don't have one. And so I want to encourage you, if you take one each week and put it back, just don't put it back, okay? That's what they're there for. Uh, we want to encourage you uh, to get in the Word daily and not just on Sunday mornings with us. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 today. Uh, last week, we, we looked at, uh, at the end of chapter 5, and, and we talked about how this whole section, 522 to 69, is, is one section dealing with uh, the family unit uh, of, of, uh, uh, of the day there in, in Ephesus. And, and we're, going to, we're going to finish up this section this morning and, and re- be reminded that Paul was shifting from uh, instructing his readers on how to live worthy of their calling within the community of faith as a church to now instructing them on how to live worthy of their calling in uh, the household of faith at home with one another. And now last week we looked at how husbands and wives are, are to relate to, another, uh, to one another in, in a gospel-saturated marriage as they submit themselves first to Christ. And today we're going to look at the relationship between parents and children and between masters and slaves. And it's going to be uh, tempting for us to assess what Paul says about masters and slaves especially by what our society is currently saying about racial justice. But just like last week, we need to understand the context that Paul is speaking into and we need to see what Paul is doing as he speaks into that context. And so while we do need to acknowledge that Paul doesn't specifically mention freedom, emancipation as part of his instructions to the masters and slaves, we also need to understand that the instructions that Paul gives here do not condone or perpetuate slavery. In fact, this entire section on relationships is in, in the household, Paul consistently elevates the humanity of those who were viewed as inferior by the society of his day, and he constantly underscores the humility that's required by those who are identified and viewed as superior. In a society that glorified the patriarch and objectified wives and children and slaves, Paul emphasizes their equality and dignity and value as people made in God's image and co-heirs of the promise of Christ Jesus, while at the same time he emphasizes the need for obedience to Christ within the current relational framework of the home. And so his emphasis in this whole section is on how the gospel changes our relationships with one another as we submit ourselves to Christ. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the saints. That's how the letter began. And in the midst of that, he's helping them learn how to grow and walk in their newfound faith in Christ. That takes time. Change happens over time. But it begins in the relationships that we already have right? And so in these pre, it's in these pre-existing relationships that Paul is addressing and bringing the, the light of the gospel into the context there. So I want to read it and then pray and then we'll dig in. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, 
Obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work while only being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. <clears throat> Excuse me. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them because you know that both their masters, their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us your son, that we can be called your children. We thank you that you've given us your spirit that we can obey the things that you've commanded us to. And we thank you that uh, we are yours in Christ and that nothing that we do changes that. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us as believers to hear your word as believers, to hear it to believers who are being transformed, to see our own lives and hearts in need of, of, uh, of continual transformation and to trust that you will finish the work that you began in us. Help us to receive it in humility. Help us to see Jesus in it. May you be glorified through it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I think it, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. Um, every relationship is, is messy, and it requires change, right? Anybody in here or on, online able to, to raise your hand and say, I have a perfect relationship with someone? Just so you guys know, nobody in the room raised their hands, okay? Um, there, there's not a single relationship that we have with another human being we need to even understand that our relationship with God itself is a work in progress, right? God continues to change us and mold us and shape us into Christ's likeness. But when it comes to our relationships with other human beings, we can't find anything uh, or, or, or uh, uh, there's not a relationship where we can't find at least something that we wish were different about that relationship. And the problem is most of the time that something is not something in us, it's something in the other person, right? When it comes to change, we typically see the need for it in others more easily than, than we see our own need for it, or, or we demand it from them before we submit ourselves to it. But the gospel changes our desire for change. God changes our hearts through faith in Christ and through his word and his spirit. He gives us both the desire and the ability to change more and more into the likeness of Christ. And that changes then our approach to how we uh, live in those messy relationships. And so this morning, uh, our goal in, in reading this scripture is to see that if we want to see true change in our relationships with one another, we need to start with our own submission to Christ and the change that he brings to us. Paul moves on from uh, husbands and wives and moves on to the, to the parent and children relationship. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, verse 1 of chapter 6. Because this is right, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you in the land and that you may have long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. As parents, we love to tell our kids that they have to obey us, don't we? 
It's like one of our proud moments. Have you ever told your child to do something and they say, well, how come I have to do it but you don't? And you say, because I'm the parent and you're the child, right? Is that just me? Okay. Um, well, you can pray for me then. Imagine if a husband told his wife to submit using the same logic. Submit because I'm the husband and you're the wife. That gets some hair standing up, doesn't it? That's the rationale that men used in Paul's day because that was what was acceptable to the non-Christian society. But Paul says that Christ changes everything. Literally everything, first in your marriage and then in the parent-child relationship. And he says that obedience is not merely a societal expectation, it's a spiritual expectation. First, he tells children to obey their parents in the Lord. Remember that he's, he's writing to Christians here, to saints. That's how he begins his letter. He's, he's helping them understand how they should live out their new Life in Christ in relationship with one another. That's not just something that adults need to learn how to do. That's something that kids need to learn how to do as well. They need to understand that obedience to their parents is an outworking of the fellowship that they have with Jesus. Their, their fellowship with Christ should fuel their desire to obey Christ. And their desire to obey Christ should fuel their desire to obey mom and dad. Kids, are you listening? Children aren't simply to obey their parents. They're to obey their parents in the Lord. Every command that Paul gives in this section, he roots it in Christ. And they're to obey their parents in the Lord because this is right. It's God's good design. Paul elaborates by quoting the fifth commandment in verses 2 and 3. Now, we think about the Ten Commandments. We can split them up into two groups and summarize them this way. The first four are about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The last six are about loving your neighbor as yourself, right? This is what Jesus says, the two greatest commandments. This is the sum of all the law, right? Now, the fifth commandment is the first one in the love your neighbor category, and it focuses on honoring your father and mother. John Stott wrote a commentary on Ephesians, and he notes that while Christians traditionally view the fifth commandment as the first one in that second group, love your neighbor, the Jewish mentality is to put it at the end of the first one it, with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and Stott argues for the Jewish view, and he says it's because obedience to parents is a part of our relationship to God and because disobedience to parents is at the heart of spiritual rebellion. In essence, if a child learns to obey mom and dad, there's a good chance that child will learn to obey God. If a child disobeys mom and dad, there's a really good chance that that child will continue in disobedience and rebellion against God. This is why the Jewish law required anyone who cursed his parents or rebelled against them to be put to death because it was tantamount to rebellion against God. It's also why the fifth commandment came with a promise attached to it. Honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. Now, in the old covenant with Israel, the land was re referred to here was the promised land, the land of Canaan that, that God was going to give his people as a nation to go live in. But we need to see that Paul doesn't say it is written. He just 
he, he, he doesn't just quote the commandment here. He gives it again as a command. In verse 2, he, he's giving it as a, as a command that still applies to his readers. And along with applying the command, he also applies the promise. But his readers are members not of the old covenant, but of the new covenant in Christ. And so Paul isn't telling them that they'll have a long life in the promised land, but he is pointing to some earthly benefits that come with honoring your parents. Let's think about this for a second. Generally, when children listen to their parents' wisdom and they follow that, what happens? They learn to avoid mistakes that can be detrimental to the quality and the duration of their life, right? If my kid listens to me, don't go play out in the street. That's going to significantly increase their chances of surviving. But when they don't listen, that tends to significantly uh, decrease the quality and the, 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 the length of their earthly lives. But we need to understand that Paul isn't guaranteeing health, wealth, and prosperity here. If you honor your parents, then you get all these things. It's not a reward for obedience. That's a false gospel, right? Earlier in his letter, Paul already laid out the guarantee of eternal inheritance for all who are in Christ. That's the true gospel reward. It's not a physical land. It's, well, it will be a new heaven and a new earth, but it's an eternity to come. It's a kingdom that we have not yet fully seen. Here he's simply pointing out them, to them that the natural positive consequences that are typically experienced by those who obey and honor their parents. This is a description more than it is a prescription. It's a general rule, not a absolute guarantee. And even in the new covenant, obedience to parents is still taken very seriously. In his, in his letter to the Romans and in his second letter to Timothy, Paul lists those who are disobedient to parents among those who are filled with all unrighteousness, who are lovers of themselves, and who deserve death under the judgment of God. The death penalty is still there. But he's not talking about a single act of disobedience. He's talking about a pattern of regular disobedience to parents that reflects a lifestyle of rebellion against God. And we know this, that those who continue in rebellion against God are headed for judgment, right? We learned that back in chapter 3 or 4. But in love... God the Father forgives the disobedient because God the Son was perfectly obedient on our behalf. He lived a life without sin and he followed all of God's commands perfectly. And then he obeyed the Father's will and he died on the cross in our place to, to pay the penalty for our sinful disobedience. And then he rose from the grave to show that the Father accepted the Son's payment and that he forgives all of those who put their trust in Jesus. As Christians, then, we're, we're free to obey out of love instead of fear because we can rest in Christ's perfect obedience on our behalf. And yet we're still called to obey, right? And so ongoing obedience to our parents is a reflection of ongoing obedience to God. It's an outworking of a heart that's been transformed and is being transformed by Christ and His grace. So children... Obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. 
but that doesn't always mean that it's easy, right? Especially if your parents are, uh, if their own hearts haven't been transformed by grace through faith in Christ. But remember, this, this entire section on the family, Paul calls each person to obedience to Christ, regardless of the responses they receive from the other person. Your obedience to Christ is not dependent upon your parents' obedience to Christ. That means that if your parents are not Christians, but they tell you to clean your room, guess what? You got to clean your room. If they tell you to be home by a certain time, you need to honor that and be home by that time. You submit yourself to their authority in everything unless obeying them means that you would have to disobey God and sin against him. This is the general rule, right? We've seen that in every relationship so far. We'll see it in the masters and slaves as well. But even if you need to disobey mom and dad so that you can obey God, that doesn't mean that you dishonor your parents in that disobedience. You should still look for ways to to love them, to respect them, to show them kindness and gentleness. And again, that's easier said than done, especially if they get angry at you and they accuse you of dishonor because you follow Christ. But this is where we need to remember that we obey God over man. And that when God tells us to honor our parents, even in the moment where our parents don't think that's happening, God will help us do that. Because God gives us the means that we need to obey what he's called us to do. So, look to his word. Look to his church. You don't have to do it alone. Seek those that are, are, are seeking the Lord in obedience. Pray for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Trust that God will give it to you through his spirit and his word and his church because those are the things that he's given us for life and godliness. And trust that even if you make a mistake, that his son has covered that through his obedience. Paul calls children to obey both parents. doesn't just say, children, obey your fathers. It's obey your parents in the Lord in verse 1. But then he addresses fathers specifically in verse 4 because just like he did with marriage, he's commanding the head of the household to do something entirely different than what he's used to. In the Greco-Roman society of Paul's day, children were told not to anger their parents through their disobedience. Here Paul turns the tables. What does he say? Fathers. Don't anger your children. In their old way of life before Christ, these men were used to demanding obedience from their children because of their position as the head of the household. And in other words, they would have been perfectly fine with saying, you need to do this because I'm the dad and you're the kid. Right? But Paul's talking now no longer to men who are dead in their sins and trespasses. He's talking to men who, through faith in Christ, have put off the old self that's corrupted by deceitful desires and have put on the new self, created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Men who themselves are now dearly loved children of God who have been called to imitate their heavenly Father and walk in sacrificial love as Christ has done for them. This is all language from Paul's letter. And so they should no longer abuse their authority as fathers and drive their children to harbor resentment against them. Instead, they should use their authority to gently, lovingly, patiently lead their children toward greater obedience to Christ. 
and they should partner with their wives in bringing their children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What does that mean? It means that they need to teach their children what God's word says, and they need to learn, uh, help their kids learn how to live out daily obedience to what they read. They need to instruct their children in the doctrines of the Christian faith, and they need to train them in the practice of it. They need to spur their children on in love toward obedience to Christ and, and discipline them in loving correction when they stray, in disobedience. Now, this requires a whole lot of patience and grace, not only from us as parents, but for us as parents. Because this is a task that we struggle to faithfully carry out. I'll say it at times. But man, that's a bumpy road, isn't it? It's one that requires dependence upon the Holy Spirit and an understanding that that God has given us this role, not just for the spiritual growth of our children, but actually to grow us spiritually in Christ as well. It's never a one-way street. When we come alongside someone else in their walk with Christ, guess what? We grow together with them. God often uses our frustrations at our kids' disobedience to reveal those areas where we excuse our own disobedience to him. You ever done that? You ever felt that sting? The moment you blow up at your kid and you're like, ooh, I do the same thing. I'm angry at them probably less because of what they did and more because I see it in myself. But the Lord, in revealing those things, also reveals the depth of his love and his grace and the forgiveness for us that he mercifully convicts our hearts with his spirit and he patiently guides us in the truth of his word toward what is right. As believers, God disciplines his children And that's a good thing because it's always restorative. It's always for our good and our growth. We're no longer punished. It's not retributive. As our loving Heavenly Father, God graciously leads us to greater conformity to His Son. And as children of God and parents of children, we should imitate our Heavenly Father by graciously leading our kids toward Christ. And we do that by teaching them and training them in his word. We can just agree right now that that, that it won't be polished, it won't be pretty, right? So you don't, don't worry about uh, uh, thinking about it, it as, a, as a success uh, based on whether or not you're able to sit everyone down as a family and do an hour-long Bible study around the table or, or the, the fire in your, in your living room with no interruptions. Everybody's listening intently, taking notes and asking good questions and not arguing, right? You've heard me say before, and I'll say it again, I'm function over fashion. Look at me. We need structure not formality, right? That's true when it comes to bringing our kids up in the training and instruction of of the Lord. We need to build the habit of opening up our Bible with our children. Just like on Sunday mornings here, we build the habit 
of opening up Scripture and getting into it. Read it together. Memorize it. Talk about it with with, uh, any and every chance that you get. Use it to guide your prayers. Sing songs about it that teach its truths. You may not be able to do all those things in one sitting, but you can work them into the overall structure of your daily rhythms. Show your kids your dependence upon God through his word and teach them to depend on him through it. Help them see that if they want to know the truth, the Bible is where they'll find it. If they come to you for it, even if you know the answer, show it to them in there. Show them you believe it by practicing what you read in it. That means that you need to ask your kids for forgiveness when you sin against them. You don't excuse it and say, well, I'm the dad. It's okay. Discipline them when they love, uh, in love when they sin against you or others. Teach them to run quickly to God for forgiveness rather than trying to hide from him in sin. Quickly and joyfully forgive them when they ask you for it. Remind them that you don't love them less because they've wronged you and that you, don't, you won't love them more if they work to right their wrong. You love them because they're your children and that'll never change. And you want them to know the joy and the freedom of forgiveness because you have found those things in Christ. You don't have to be an expert in theology. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to help your kids learn from Scripture. One of the most important things that you can teach your kids is that Scripture teaches them. And that every believer, young and old, has been given the indwelling spirit who leads us into all truth, who gives us spiritual wisdom and understanding uh, uh, to understand what we read and works God's grace in to us and our hearts to give us both the desire and the ability to apply what we've read to our lives. One of the best ways that you can teach your kids is to let them see you learn from Scripture. Let them see you do what it says. Let them see your grace-driven progress in Christ-likeness and invite them to be a part of it. We learn from Christ together. Consistency in the Word and dependency on the Word These are the things that your kids need to learn from you. These are the things that you can teach your kids, no matter how old or young they are, whether you're single parent or married to an unbeliever or both of you are walking with Christ, it's the same goal, to increase their dependency upon Jesus and their confidence in him by consistently remaining dependent upon his word. That's because it's a way of life. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Parents, your kids need a worldview centered on Jesus Christ, not simply a church view centered on Jesus Christ. They need to learn how to think about everything in terms of God's plan to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. Ephesians 1.10, Christ is not just the head of the church, He's the ruler of all things. Ephesians 1, 22, 23. 
Everything is subjected under his feet. That means that there's nothing, nothing, nothing that your kids will go through in life that's outside of Christ's loving rule and care. Help them see that. Point out the effects of sin around them and in their own hearts. Lead them to the cross of Jesus Christ where redemption, where restoration, where righteousness are found and God's own heart is revealed in the sacrificial death of his obedient son to rescue sinners from themselves. Remind them that the grave is empty and God's mercies are new every morning because Jesus is alive and is always interceding for his people. Teach them to work from grace and not for it. That Christ's obedience and righteousness is now theirs through faith. Remind them that this world is not their home. And that Christ is coming back to judge the world and to rid it of sin and darkness and evil once and for all and to make all things new. Help them see that God has given them a mission to love and to serve others in humility, in compassion, in grace, and to bring the good news of the gospel to those around them through the content of their words and the conduct of their lives. Parents, bring your children up in the instruction and the training of the Lord. We have one final relationship to look at. And this is where we have to understand the difference between human relationships that are the result of God's created order and human relationships that are a result of the fall of sinful man. Before sin ever entered the picture, God gave Adam and Eve, uh, God gave Eve to Adam, his wife, as his wife, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. In God's good and perfect created order, the family unit consisted of one husband and one wife and their children. And God told them to fill the earth and to subdue it, to to rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. But then what happened? Genesis 3. They sinned and they rebelled against God in the garden and their sin corrupted God's good and perfect created order. Selfishness and strife entered marriage, dividing what God united. Every child now is born with a sinful nature. Rebellion against God and disobedience against parents come naturally. You do not have to teach your children how to sin, right? And human beings weren't satisfied with ruling over every kind of animal, so they began to subdue and to rule each other. Instead of honoring one another as the pinnacle of God's creation, made in his image and distinctly unique from all other kinds of living beings, people began to treat their fellow image bearers of God like beasts. This dehumanization is what led to murder, sexual immorality, slavery, and a whole slew of other things. Since slavery is in our view here in the text, that's what we're going to address. We need to remember that the whole point of Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9 is to show how the gospel restores relationships that sin has corrupted. And how it calls people to make submission to Christ their highest priority in those relationships with one another. And in these next verses, we're going to see that that gospel restoration doesn't immediately mean change in circumstances. Instead, it focuses on changing people's hearts in the midst of their circumstances. We need to remember and understand and be clear here that Paul is in no way condoning slavery 
In fact, what he writes here, what he writes in his letter to Philemon and in his first letter to Timothy and in his first letter to the Corinthians and in his letter to the Colossians, these are all passages of scriptures that not only restore and emphasize and build up the humanity of those that society dehumanized, but it also calls them brothers and sisters in Christ and co-heirs in the kingdom of God because they've heard the gospel, the, 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 the truth of their salvation, and they believed it. They've entrusted themselves to Christ now as slaves of righteousness. These passages are, are seeds sown toward the destruction of slavery, not the perpetuation of it. And while we don't condone slavery, it doesn't mean we can't pull anything from this, these verses. The relational principles in these verses, they still apply to us because they remain true for any relationship where there's a legal authority that's recognized like the military, like the government. Maybe, maybe one of the most relatable in our circumstances is employer and employee in the workplace. So we need to keep that in mind as we read through this. Look at verse 5. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work while being watched as people pleasers. But as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. It's important that we don't miss the significance that, uh, of Paul addressing slaves directly right here in this letter, right? Or the fact that he addressed wives directly, or the fact that he addressed children directly, and not, and not just went through the, the, the patriarch of the household. This is completely countercultural. Society considered these people to be subordinate and insignificant, but Paul treats them once again like human beings. And not only that, he speaks to them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. The commands he gives them are not to suppress them. They are to support them in their new life in Christ. Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's been sent out by Christ himself to deliver the good news to the Gentiles. What does he call himself earlier in this letter? The least of all the saints. He's in prison. When he's writing this, he's in prison for the, the, for the sake of the gospel and the work that it's doing in the lives of these, of these wives and these children and these slaves and in the lives of the men who lead their households from a newfound gospel perspective. In the first century Greco-Roman world, slaves were an integral part of the family. It, es it was estimated that uh, there's probably about a third of, of the population of es Ephesus was made up of slaves in the household. Some of them had the privilege of being able to buy back their freedom, but many were mistreated and abused. Paul addresses that issue with the masters in verse 9, but first he tells slaves that their servitude is not dependent upon the way their masters treat them. It's dependent upon their submission to Christ as new creations in him. Now, it would be tempting for a slave who found new freedom in Christ to reject the authority of his earthly master. But Paul tells these slaves to reject apathy and insincerity instead. He says they should take their obedience seriously. 
obeying their earthly masters as they would Christ himself because he is their heavenly master. They shouldn't work only when their earthly master is looking and slack off when he's not. They should remember that they're slaves to Christ, that Christ has purchased them for himself through his own shed blood, and he's always watching us. And he desires that work is done with a sincere heart that seeks to please him and bring him glory rather than to please people. And he says that they should serve with a good attitude because they know that they've been already been given a heavenly reward in Christ. According to chapter 1, as believers, he's addressing them as slaves just so they know who he's talking to. But he could very well just as easily say saints. And as saints, according to chapter 1, they have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In Christ Jesus. These slaves have an eternal inheritance waiting for them. Even though they receive no earthly reward for their earthly, from their earthly masters for their earthly work, their position in society doesn't exclude them from receiving the, the same rewards that a free man would from Christ's finished work on their behalf. And no earthly reward, not even earthly freedom, can compare to what God has waiting for those who trust in Jesus. Paul isn't saying that the good works that the slaves do on earth will earn them their inheritance in heaven. That's salvation by works. That's a false gospel. The point Paul's making in verse 8 is that slaves are on equal ground with their masters when it comes to a heavenly reward. Why? Because they're one in Christ. Their social status has no bearing on their spiritual status in Christ. And Paul makes that clear by what he tells the masters in verse 9. God's rewards and God's judgments are impartial. He doesn't play favorites. Jew, Gentile, female, male, slave, free, all are one in Christ. But all stand equally condemned without Christ. Paul reminds earthly masters that they're not actually the master. God is. That's a good reminder for all of us who have the tendency to look at ourselves and determine ourselves to be sovereign. And as believers in Christ, these masters serve the same Lord as the slaves who are now their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so the way they treat those slaves ought to reflect their understanding of, of who is really in charge here. They should no longer use threat as a motivation for obedience. Instead, they should treat their slaves as co-heirs in Christ because that's exactly what they are. Now, if these earthly masters take Paul's words seriously, then you see how it leaves no reason, no room for slavery to continue, ultimately. And they begin to see their slaves not only as human beings, equal in dignity and worth, but also as brothers and sisters in Christ. That makes it difficult then to treat them as anything less. So then how do we take these principles and live them out in the workplace? Well, let's start with employee. Do you work for your boss as you would for Christ? Do you do your best work while your boss is paying attention? Or do you work hard even when nobody's looking? Are you more concerned about the appearance of what you're doing rather than the substance of it? How does that play out in Zoom meetings while you're working at home? Do you complain about your boss? Convince yourself that you should have his or her job? 
Or do you have a good attitude, thankful that for the job that you do have, and joyful that you get to serve the Lord in it? If you're an employer, do you regularly mistreat your employees, overlook their work, verbally abuse them? Do you use your position as leverage to threaten them, to gain your own advantage, or to serve them and to promote their good? How do the ways that you conduct business and treat your employees reflect the reality that Christ is your master and your Lord? Do you see yourself as the final authority in your workplace or as, or as one who is under the higher authority of Jesus? How do you help your employees see that Christ is worth serving wholeheartedly? As believers in Christ, we've been called to change. But that change must not be dependent upon what we see in others. It must be dependent upon what we see in Christ. Because of his obedience to the Father, he rescued us from slavery to sin and death. So if we want to see true change in our relationships with one another, it has to start with our own submission to Christ. And we can freely obey our Father. We can freely submit to our Master's commands. Why? Because we're already his. We know that he will be faithful to finish the life-changing work that he began in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that your spirit that dwells in us takes it and works it into our minds and hearts, gives us both the desire and the ability to obey it, that you use it, God, as a tool for our conformity to Christ. May we never go without it. May we never depend on anything less. May we never think that we can do it on our own. May we never look to others first, but only to Christ. And trust ourselves to you. Do what you've called us to do in obedience, out of the freedom that we've been given. Knowing that our reward is yet to come. And submitting joyfully to one another in the authority that you've placed over our lives. So that we can show your work in us and that others will be drawn to you and have their lives eternally changed forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.